and welcome to the Smuggles Podcast. This is episode 77. Today's topic is calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdose with Kartik Shah. We'll be playing his lecture from the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine shortly and you can watch the video in its entirety at the usual place of www.continualist.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Before we play that, Kardik joined me on a call to give his top five pearls of wisdom. I hope you enjoy this episode. So hello and welcome to the St. Mungo's podcast. Kardik Shah, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, brilliant. And we are going to play one of your lectures, a wonderful lecture in uh, calcium channel blocker and beta blocker toxicity on the pocketbook of emergency medicine. But you very kindly agreed to join me today just to give me uh, some pearls of wisdom uh, for emergency clinicians. So just before we get into that, do you mind, just for the benefit of our listeners, just giving us a little quick background uh, to you, uh, your professional background and where you are in the world? Definitely. So I'm an emergency medicine physician, but also dual certified in medical toxicology. I currently practice in the Northeast Georgia health system. So that's in the United States and Georgia, about 50 miles Northeast of Atlanta. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, look, why don't we just jump into it? If you're okay, um, you're going to give us five pearls of wisdom. So over to you. Thanks. Definitely. Yeah, so these pearls are about another passion of mine, which is learning and skill acquisition. So the first one is that competence is not the same as mastery. So we can gain competence somewhat quickly, but we can be stuck there and stagnate. So to take that next step to become a master and an expert, we need a specific type of practice, deliberate practice. Now there's an entire book on this called Peak, The Science of Expertise. But overall, you break the skill down into its components that you can do repeatedly and analyze effectively. You determine your weaknesses and figure out ways to address them. And I think this way, the overall sum of the pieces becomes better. Otherwise, rather than becoming a master who can handle more difficult situations, you become what's called an experienced novice who did one year of practice repeated five times instead of five years of practice. This leads into my next pearl, is that you practice not until you succeed, but rather practice until you cannot fail. So let's say once I discovered that during central lines, I struggled with specifically the dilation step. Then I worked to fix that microscale and I drill it over and over until it's into my muscle memory. It may take me two or three reps to dilate successfully, but it's going to take me 50 or 100 reps so that I'll be able to do it smoothly under pressure. Next, the power of visualization and learning and maintenance. So we work hard to develop certain skills but then we have to maintain those skills. So for example, for the high stakes, low frequency procedures, like a cryothyrotomy session, we can set aside one hour a month to simply visualize these in as vivid detail as possible. That will allow us to feel more comfortable to do these encounters if and when they arise. Switching gears a little bit, but still related to learning, you can learn from everyone, even those you dislike or disagree with. For example, one of the many reasons I ensure I'm always a calm in the storm, even during my most chaotic shifts, is because I remember seeing during my training what happened when the lead physician, the captain of the ship, was not calm, and what atmosphere that led to for the rest of the department, and so I promised myself I would never do that. Finally, remember, it's not about you. Meaning, when receiving constructive feedback, don't take it emotionally and personally. It's about improving yourself so those you care for will do better. I actually say it to my learners, and I say it to myself, whenever I receive feedback, so that we all stay open to change. And as a corollary, 
remember to ask, even if you dislike the messenger, is the message itself true and worthy of causing change in yourself? Well, those are my thoughts. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Great pearls. Well, look, let's just jump into your lecture. Hello, this is Kartik Shah. I'm coming to you from the United States. Today, we're going to talk about calcium channel blocker and beta blocker toxicity. I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. We'll start off with the case. So, we have a 58-year-old female, sure depression, and she's coming in with dizziness. You get your initial vital signs, and she is bradycardic and hypotensive. And when I see a patient like this, a mnemonic that I use is DIE, D-I-E, as to the emergent causes of bradycardia and hypotension. If we look at the American Heart Association guidelines for bradycardia and the causes, this is actually the causes that they care about as well. In particular, they talk about myocardial ischemia, drugs, hypoxia, and electrolyte abnormalities. So, this happens to spell out die. Drugs, ischemia, electrolytes. Now, which drugs in particular do we care about? The four big classes that I'll think about are the calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, the cardiac steroids, such as digoxin, and the alpha-2 agonists, such as um, clonidine. Let's review some basic physiology, and that will uh, make sense for all of our management options as well, and how these drugs work. So, this is a standard cardiac myocyte. Starting at the upper left-hand corner, that blue is the beta receptor. It's a G protein that activates adenylocyclase, and that leads to cyclic AMP, and protein kinase A that then phosphorylates various enzymes as well as the calcium channel. We get more calcium into our cell and that leads to calcium-induced calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum and we get all this calcium and that leads to muscle contraction. Therapeutically, calcium channel blockers block the calcium channel and the dihydropyridines are amlodipine, nicardipine. They tend to be more peripheral Though, in overdose, they can lose their selectivity and you can actually get uh, bradycardia with them as well. This is the difference between pharmacodynamics and toxicodynamics. Now, the non-dihydropyridines are something like verapamil or diltiazem, and they have AV nodal blockade effects. Of note, the pancreas also has calcium channels. So, when these are blocked, you'll get less insulin release and you'll get hyperglycemia uh, in a calcium channel blocker overdose. Now, beta blockers block the beta receptor. So the drugs tend to end in LOL. So the ALOL, like labetalol, has alpha effects. The OLOL, like metoprolol, is related to propranolol. And then cell either something like carbetalol. There's beta receptors throughout your body, such as on your heart. This leads to chronotropy and inotropy, so faster heart rate, better squeeze. Uh, you can get bronchial dilation. So that's why we give beta agonists for someone who has an asthma attack. And our beta blockers will block these receptors. So how will a toxic patient look like? Well, they can be bradycardic, but generally they'll have hypotension and the shock stages, decreased anorgan perfusion uh, with various organs manifesting that. So if their brain is not being perfused, they may be dizzy or have mental status changes, though that's unreliable as we'll talk about. If their kidneys are not functioning well, they'll go into renal failure and decrease your output and so on. Now, calcium channel blockers, because, that, but because of the channels on the pancreas, they get the elevated glucose, and they have this insulin deficiency, and an acidosis that will lead to acidemia. It's going to look like DKA. 
So which diagnostic test am I going to be ordering? Well, if someone has a history of self-harm, then I'm going to get congestions like acetaminophen and salicylate levels. I'm going to get EKG. I'll get my chemistry. So I'll get electrolytes and kidney function. I'll also get glucose and I'll be helpful as we'll see on the next slide for certain cases. And then if possible, I'll get a point of care ultrasound to look at the cardiac function. Also involve my regional toxicologists. In America, we'll have our poison centers, but which are regional toxicology services available. They will help you in managing this patient. Now, in our non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, so verapamil and diltiazem, this series looked at their initial sugar and then outcome, and a composite outcome of mortality, pacemakers, and vasopressor use. And they saw that the higher the initial sugar is, the more likely they would need one of these interventions. And so that might tell you that, you know, I should get the ICU involved a little bit earlier and know my final disposition a little bit sooner. In terms of management, there's three big principles I can ever do for any toxicologic situation beyond really good supportive care, which is very important. So I can decrease absorption, I can enhance elimination, or is there a unique antidote, unique management step to that particular agent? So let's talk about decreasing absorption. The main way I do that is activate charcoal. Current guidelines are over 10 years old, and they say you should only give it within one hour, but those guidelines are uh, changing. And uh, the study on the right, for example, shows that if you did endoscopy on just overdose patients, the first two columns are solid and liquid phase. Those outnumber the empty stomachs for the first 12 hours. That's probably because there's decreased gastric motility in overdose. And also there's also BZORs, the sustained release, extended release formulations. And so because of that, and I'm having a life-threatening toxic ingestion, I will give charcoal much more than just one hour after ingestion. In terms of enhancing elimination, the main way I can think about doing that is with hemodialysis. Unfortunately, these agents are either have one of these properties which make them not dialyzable. They are lipophilic, or they have high protein binding, or they have high volume distribution, and any one of these means they're not going to be easily dialyzable. There's a few beta blockers on the slide that are uh, dialyzable, and your regional alpoison sour toxicologist can help you uh, with that. Now, before we get to the final management steps for this, more we'll of you shock and the difference between blood pressure and perfusion. So, using an example of gardening uh, a lawn or flowers, we want water to go to that. We don't really care about the pressure in the hollows, so they're related. So, in that same way, we care for ourselves how much blood flow is going to them, not necessarily our blood pressure, though they are related. And they're related with the equation, the mean arterial pressure is the cardiac output times the um, resistance. So if I put a kink in that hose, I can increase the resistance and increase the pressure. I'm not getting good flow, good water to the grass or good blood to my uh, organs. And so that's an important distinction to always remember. Now for class of shock, there's cardiogenic shock, so my pump is not working. There's obstructive shock like tamponade. There's hypovolemic shock like massive hemorrhage. And then distributive shock, and my pipes are too uh, wide. In the toxicologic scenario, especially with calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, it's either going to be a cardiogenic shock or a distributive shock or both. Uh, but generally not obstructive and generally not hypovolemic. So we need to tease out which one of these is primarily occurring. Also with this model, thinking about perfusion, we want to know our organs being perfused. What is a good marker for that? So for kidneys, our kidneys are happy. They'll make good urine output. So I really want to track urine output. And for brain, mental status is usually a good thing to track 
However, for whatever reason, especially with calcium channel blockers, this can lie to you. They can have a blood pressure of 50 or 60 and still be talking and then suddenly rest. So don't be deceived. That blood pressure on the monitor is real. So what can we do to help our patients? My pre-hospital team often is going to give fluids for a hypotensive patient. And our AHA guidelines say you can try atropine. Honestly, it's not going to help that much, but you can try it. Our next options are going to be calcium and glucagon. So why would we use that? So calcium, uh, well, we can bypass the beta receptor and just give more calcium. Or if there's a calcium channel blocker on board, we can overwhelm that gradient and try to go through that calcium channel. We get more iron trophy here. And you have to give a lot, though. And that's a theme for all these measures. You have to give large doses. It's not going to last very long, so you have to start the modern infusion, and they'll target double their ionized calcium. Glucagon, on the other hand, is a way of bypassing the beta receptor and activating the adenocyclase mechanism. So you'll get both iontropy and chronotropy. The issue with glucagon, though, is many. So one is that the old studies that we begot glucagon is they took animal pancreas and they ground it up, and that's they took that super neat. Well, that also had insulin. So maybe it was the insulin that was working, not the glucagon. Uh, glucagon also makes the patients vomit. And also, it's a high dose. So if you're using this, you have to put them on an infusion generally, you'll quickly deplete your entire hospital supply of glucagon for most hospitals. So generally not the win. It's not something what I uh, typically use that often. Though, there's a time that I actually use a little bit more. And that's actually in refractory anaphylaxis. And the patient has a beta blocker as uh, one of their home medicines. And so if I give my epinephrine, they're not responding, I might give a dose of glucagon. Finally, well, not finally, uh, but what else can we do? Well, there's vasopressors, which is what we typically think about for someone who's hypotensive. There's different classes of uh, vasopressors and different actions. So since our two primary shock states that we're trying to tease out is cardiogenic and distributive, I want agents that have vasoconstriction and iontropy. So that's that upper right hand. So I'm going to pick epinephrine. Uh, and norepinephrine as my primary agents. One more for iontropy, one more for uh, vasoconstriction. This is a case series from the Phoenix group, and they show that they primarily use vasopressors. Uh, they did not like high-dose insulin, and they showed that their outcomes were quite fine. But notice that the key is they have to use much higher doses of vasopressors than our standard doses that we may use in, let's say, sepsis. And that's okay, because this is a different phenomenon. This is receptor blockade, and then we simply have to overwhelm the receptors. Notice that I put a node on the dopamine, and that's because dopamine will artificially increase your urine output, which is one of my perfusion markers, without actually helping uh, renal failure. And also, it's an indirect acting catechol. It, it itself has to be converted to a catechol, so I'd rather use a direct acting agent such as norepinephrine and epinephrine. Now, finally, I allude to this we can use high doses. So why would we want to give a high dose of insulin to these patients? Well, normally the heart wants to use its most efficient state, which is free fatty acids. And so it's an 80-20 mix of using free fatty acids. In the stress state, it seems that flips. So we'd much rather use carbs. And by giving high doses of insulin, we'll actually support it in the stress state and increase primarily inotropy. And that means if we're using this, We'll expect better LV function, but we won't expect a faster heart rate. Now, there's not great evidence for this in terms of human data, but there is a series of human case reports, case series, and quite a bit of animal data. So I'm going to show you some of that. So this is a study of high-dose insulin where they actually 
did not use a task logic model. They actually gave these dogs a heart attack by putting uh, little beads in their left main coronary. Cardiac output went down, they left it equilibrate, and they did high dose insulin and you see a dramatic rise. This is a toxicological situation now, uh, and the animals were randomized to either high dose insulin, glucagon, or epinephrine, and we see it was the ones that got high dose insulin that did the best and actually survived. If we look at human data, there's a review that says that uh, there's no mortality benefit to this glucose insulin potassium infusion, which is kind of concerning. But when we actually look at that review, uh, we see that the doses they're using are not true high dose insulin rates. They're actually TKA rates, which is, tends to be around 0.1 units per kilo per hour. And that's not the goal. You want to use 10 times as much, one unit per kilo per hour. So one of their studies didn't use that. So let's look at that one. It was from the cardiothoracic world, and they randomized uh, these patients post-cabbage. Uh, and they found that uh, these patients did much better, and they didn't have, they did in fact have uh, increased cardiac contractility. Another RCT from the cardiothoracic world, and they found that it was comparable to dobutamine, but actually had decreased myocardial oxygen consumption, which makes sense with the mechanism. So again, high-dose insulin gives iontropic effect, and glucose control is not the goal. So that's why I use high-dose insulin and not glucose insulin, potassium infusion, or other names. Beyond the hypoglycemic effects that can occur by giving a large amount of insulin, we're going to get a potassium shift, and so they can get a hypokalemia. But both the hypoglycemia and the hypokalemia, there is a ceiling effect. There's not an infinite amount of hypoglycemia or hypokalemia you'll get, and so you set the mod. The biggest issue, though, with high-dose insulin is actually the protocol itself and the work. So whenever I do a resuscitation, I care about both logistics as well as tactics. Tactics are what I want to do. Logistics are how do I make that happen. And as I'm about to show you the sample uh, protocol, there's a lot of work involved. And so while this is a powerful tool, it is very involved. So let's see what we have to do. We start with a one unit per kilo bolus and then a one unit per kilo per hour infusion. And so that's 10 times as much as my standard DKA infusion rates. Because of that, I don't want to give too much fluid. I have to have a specially concentrated bag that's 10 times the concentration often. And then I'm going to increase that rate. That's a starting rate. So this is very unfamiliar with uh, a lot of my team. So I have to walk them through this. Then I have to watch their sugars very carefully. Uh, and I have to do finger sticks every 10 minutes initially, ideally, and then every 30 minutes. And then I also have to monitor the potassium. And I had to let that potassium ride a little bit low to 2.5 based on the animal data. And that can be a little uncomfortable for a lot of people and manage that as well. So it's a lot of monitoring, but it's a very powerful tool in your armamentarium that if you need to, you should be want to use. So these are our key management options. My pre team often gives IV fluids and maybe I will as well. I might try atropine, calcium, glucagon, uh, but then pressors and high doses Lenarc are my really sick patients. What else can I do? None of these on the slide really have the same level of evidence. So if you try pacing, bradycardic and hypotensive after all, but often you won't get capture. Um, or if you do, you won't really get mechanical capture. And your goal, again, is really inotropy, right? There's other uh, interventions, but again, not the same level of evidence. Though, at the very bottom, we see ECMO. And these are great ECMO candidates. The cellular architecture is still intact. It shows there's a receptor that is being blocked. And so if you let the body metabolize those uh, agents, 
they generally do quite well. And these patients often are, often are very young and they can withstand the hit of ECMO. Interall, this is how I like to think about it. So I have someone who's bradycardic and hypotensive. I might give them some fluids and then we start with atropine or calcium or glucagon. And this might work for our therapeutic misadventures, someone who takes a second or third dose of their medicines. But someone who has self-harm in just 50, 100 pills, that's really not going to be the win. I'm going to take my ultrasound. I'm going to decide on the right, do they have a primarily distributed state? And they have great LB function. It's like, all right, I'm going to use primarily a uh, vasoconstrictive agent, such as norepi. And there is no limit. I just keep going until I get the effect I want. On the other hand, I have a 25-year-old they have very poor LV function. I need an inotropic agent, something like epinephrine. And then if I'm getting to higher doses, I'm going to bring out a more powerful tool, which is going to be a high-dose sensor. Now, let's say I don't have access to point of care ultrasound. Well, this is where warm and cold shocks are going to come into play. So if I have someone who's hypotensive and their hands and their feet are warm and vasodilated, it's kind of bizarre. So if that points more towards a shrewd state, I'm going to go more with norepinephrine. On the other hand, they're cool and clammy, that's more of a cold shock and go more with my inotropes. And again, there are states where they may have both and I might have to use both. On the other hand, more cutting edge, what I believe the future is, is if you have lots of resources available and you're using high-dose insulin, consider actually placing a continuous glucose monitor, what we use in our patients with diabetes, uh, on them, and then you'll be able to assess for their hypoglycemia much more easily, and then later on your ICU as their glucose requirements uh, go higher, that's actually a marker that the patient is getting better and their agents are being metabolized away. This is a quick recap of beta blockers versus calcium channel blockers and their differences. So our blood glucose for our calcium channel blockers because of the pancreas effect is gonna be higher. Our beta blockers won't be hypoglycemic, they'll just be normal glycemic, which is a common misconception. Our mental status is going to be bizarrely preserved more in our calcium channel blockers, but sometimes our beta blockers as well, more than you'd expect for their blood pressure. There are a few beta blockers that are dialyzable. Because of the pancreas effect not present in the beta blocker overdoses, their insulin needs are going to be higher, and when you turn off the high-dose insulin, it'll take longer uh, for, that, in, for that dextrose infusion to be stopped. In terms of glucagon and calcium, there's more data for glucagon and beta blocker overdoses, and more data for calcium and our calcium channel blocker overdoses. And then remember glucagon for refractory anaphylaxis and some who's on a beta blocker. Going back to our case, it turns out this patient had overdosed and it was still ties up. They had an elevated finger stick initial, and so that is a poor prognostic marker. They started with glucagon and calcium fluids, didn't really help. So they did a point of care ultrasound. They found this decreased ejection fraction when they started out the patient on high dose insulin. She spent a couple of days in the ICU, but she was eventually discharged from the hospital. In summary, our patient who is low and slow, bradycardic and hypotensive, we think about drugs, ischemia, and electrolytes. The drugs, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, our cardioactive steroids such as digoxin, and our alpha-2 agonists are some uh, big classes that come to mind. Our initial glucose can help prognosticate and our non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker toxic patients. Point-of-care ultrasound is very useful and helps determine cardiogenic shock versus distributive shock. Initial options are going to be fluids, atropine, calcium, and glucagon. Um, and remember that glucagon for anaphylactic shock that's refractory and they're on a beta blocker. However, 
and someone who's very sick, I'm starting using pressors. Norepinephrine more for our distributor shock, whereas epinephrine and ultimately high-dose insulin for our cardiogenic shock patients. And remember, the doses for all of these are going to be quite high. High-dose insulin, you need to keep track of their glucose as well as their potassium. And mental status, remember, can lie, especially with their calcium channel blocker overdoses, but in blockers as well. So track their urine output. And thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. Look, Cardiac, thank you very much for that wonderful talk. Absolutely fantastic. Look, before we let you go, I always ask every guest uh, the same question, if that's okay. It can be quite revealing. Um, but if I could take you back on a time machine to meet your junior self, just uh, exiting university, just about to start your career, uh, what one piece of advice would you give them? Yeah, you know, mindset is key, but there's already so much good content by people who are more experienced than me that you've always spoken to. And so I'd ask your listeners to listen to those other episodes. Um, there's a series called The Ian Mindset, done around 10 years ago on the EM.us website, which I thought helped me. I'd for your listeners too. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. So I think where I've gone to currently is pretty good. So it's hard to say what would happen had things gone differently in an alternate universe. The mistakes I've made have taught me and led to the success I've had today. However, something that I've done more recently that I wish I had done sooner, more consistently, is a, a technique called time blocking. So there's a post by a professor named Cal Newport back in 2013 on time blocking. He's the author of a book called Deep Work, among other things. So the idea is straightforward. So first, you track your time down to the minute for a week. And then having that data, you see where there's room for improvement. And then you work on planning out the upcoming day. And this is primarily for my days off, not on my clinical shifts. With this time block schedule, it serves as a guide for the day. And that's flexible. If your car breaks down, but so be it. But having purpose and intention into your free time allows for greater maximization of that time, not just regarding career pursuits, but personal pursuits as well. Working in the emergency department and having just seen a global pandemic, we see, we know just how quickly life can change. The rise of the internet and social media has been designed specifically to steal our time, which is the one thing that we can never get more of, and none of us know how much we have, just that it's decreasing every single day. So be purposeful with our time, even if that purpose is blocked off as staring off into the sunset at between 7 and 7.15 p.m. Otherwise, it's too easy for it to vanish without making us happier and without making the world a better place, which would be a shame fantastic advice brilliant well look thank you for everything that you've given us in this episode it's absolutely brilliant uh, Cardic, and maybe what, what we'll ask if you could give us links to both the EM Docs mindset thing and that book uh, we'll put that in the show notes uh, for the listeners uh, Cardic, thank you very much for joining me today absolutely my pleasure thank you so much for having me so many, many thanks again to Cardiac Shah for the wonderful pearls of wisdom and the wonderful talk. Remember, you can watch the video in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash Mungos. And please share that information with your friends and colleagues too. Until next time, please take care.